know, if you're going to do theater, it's not just to strut your stuff. It's going to be to crack the binary, to create a better world, to be the change you want to see, uh, be the change I needed when I was a kid. Welcome to Artist as Leader, where we explore the intersection of creativity and leadership. I'm Rob Kramer, the founder and CEO of Kramer Leadership. And I'm Pierre Carlo Talenti, producer and editor of this podcast. In this episode, we bring you our discussion with the renowned Shakespearean actor, Lisa Volpe. We were originally going to interview her in person when she was here in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, while she was performing the role of Cassius in Julius Caesar, which was done at Playmakers Repertory Company. But COVID-19 found its way here and the production was cut short. So Pierre Carlo and I were able to interview her remotely when she was home safely in Santa Monica, California. And uh, Pierre, can you tell us a little bit about Lisa? Sure. Uh, well, to put it simply, she really is one of this country's finest Shakespearean actors. And her specialty is, and has been for many years, acting Shakespeare's male characters. I love that. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, neither of us got to see her play Cassius in Chapel Hill. But when I lived in Los Angeles, I had the great fortune of seeing and admiring her in several productions at the Los Angeles Women's Shakespeare Company which she founded in 1993 and led for 23 years. Now, there's one thing I have to make clear. I think, as we'll hear in the interview, when she started acting in male Shakespearean parts, it was still revolutionary. But at this point, when she's getting cast, let's say, as Cassius or as Iago or as Hamlet, it is simply because she's one of the finest actors to play that part. So it's thanks to the work that she's done for for decades now that fine female actors can play any part in Shakespeare, no matter the gender. The other thing about her, she's now an in-demand scholar as well, and she teaches at universities all over the world. And she also directs every summer at the Prague Shakespeare Company. Amazing. Amazing. Such a good interview we had with her. And uh, we started the interview by asking her how she became the artist leader that she is today. I've been leading groups of people ever since I was a kid. Uh, I guess when I finally got into high school with California kid culture and I stared at it sort of quietly for my freshman year, I then decided to just get involved in everything. Um, I'd been in Europe for a few years and I wasn't really understanding American culture and I just observed it from the outside. And then I started to look at, you know, what was happening, the opportunities were going to people who stepped forward. So I ended up volunteering for everything. Um, I was editor of the paper for four years. I played volleyball. I was chief justice of the student court. And I got into theater. Um, and one of the things that happened, we had pep rallies for the for the sports teams, which my brother was playing on. And nobody could think of anything to do for the pep rally. So I started to write skits and put together rehearsals and put on shows even when I was 15 um, in high school. But that whole growth towards being a leader, being a, the editor of the paper, being uh, relates directly to being artistic director of a company, bringing groups of people together and uh, creating a situation where people are eloquent about their opinions and you know what they were put on this earth to do and, the kind of upliftment that comes with having relationships with other like-minded people, the happiness I feel when I find someone that I can talk with and students that I can educate and 
teachers that I can learn from and artists that can design with me. Um, I found I'm a very strong-minded woman and it, I, I don't have a problem uh, seeing things in full vision form, but certainly in order to affect anything as, a, as an artist in the theater, you have to be more than one person. Um, so, so, so my whole life has sort of led me toward uh, a depth of inquiry uh, and then building a model to reach other people, either the audience or the, the readership or the, uh, the colleagues. Within that, I'm curious um, if there were components of either artistic experience or your training that you picked up along the way when sort of things started to really come together and you said, oh, okay, I really see myself as an artist leader here and I see how I'm applying my skill set in a holistic way. Was there kind of a, a, a light bulb moment for you at any point or was it this, this, this continual evolution for you? It's certainly been an evolution. I think about four years ago, there was a seismic shift in my understanding of where I was uh, positioned because I started working a lot in Europe and, uh, and in London. I found I, I taught in five different universities as a guest artist and I kept finding it all of the MA students were writing on gender and Shakespeare and they were mostly writing about me and my work. Whereas when I was working for 20 years in LA before we had the internet, I felt that I was working alone. Um, so the idea that in the last four years that my work on gender and Shakespeare and cross-gender performance and diverse inclusivity and casting um, uh, parody has come into a worldwide trend which did not exist when I was a kid. So my idea of being the Sisyphus who would push this rock up and maybe get crushed by it as it rolled back down has now shifted because uh, now, you know, I'm actually hanging out with Michelle Terry at the globe and talking about projects. You know, I mean, I mean, it's not like I'm super famous or have a bunch of money, but at least I have access to all of the coolest Shakespeare people in the hugely interconnected international world of Shakespeare lovers at a certain point, like after 40 years, you end up knowing a bunch of people and it's not so intimidating anymore and knowing a lot more about the text and how to play it and direct it and, um, and knowing a lot more about how to be a leader. Because for me, as a person who ended up being um, a Shakespeare geek who's a queer woman, I've pretty much spent an entire lifetime being positioned against any idea that there's any opportunity for me in the field. And I've absolutely created a fabulous, interesting, passionate life around Shakespeare that sustains me every single day of my life. And I'm not bored with it. It's been over 40 years and I have plenty. I have more work to do than I've ever had because of this international trend in casting consciousness and uh, uh, letting women direct and act. I literally was told not to direct, even though I was a standout director because I was a woman when I left college. Uh, by my mentor, Alan Schneider, who said, you're a fantastic actress. Women don't direct. I know I just put you in all my graduate classes because you're an undergraduate who's super talented, but don't think you can actually use these skills, um, which was an amazing argument between us because I'm uppity. So the minute he said that, I spent the rest <laughs> of my life trying to direct. <laughs> and then after Alan, I had these female mentors like Tina Packer and Kristen Linklater and Mary Conway and Natsuko Ohama, really amazing uh, bandwidth women who had completely different uh, techniques than Alan in terms of leadership. Uh, they worked collaboratively. Uh, they worked on the yes and principle, whereas Alan would literally throw a chair across a the theater and fire a student from a production 
because he was on a path for excellence that demanded patriarchal leadership. So learning to be an associative collaborator came more from the Shakespeare and Company and the female mentors that I had. But my the bar was set early on for leadership, that you had to know where excellence was. And you, so I've never been more nice than I am in search of brilliance. Uh, That's a great quote. (laughs) So tell it. So a lot, I think a lot of other actors, directors coming up would have folded if they'd face this kind of um, uh, atmosphere. So can you talk about how you found your own individual life path, your own passion and made it a reality? Uh, Finding your passion, gender and Shakespeare, making that your specialty, creating your own company. Can you talk about that? Well, part of it is, uh, you know, knocking on doors and not getting in when I was clearly a straight A student and why should it be so difficult? And then you really meet the business world of the theater, which is not, which was not, which was very homophobic when I was a kid coming up in the early 80s. Um, And I wanted truth. That's what we'd studied on the rehearsal floor. So I I just think there are certain things I was... I was prevented from doing, and so I had to find my own road because people weren't casting strong, intelligent, androgynous women at all. But but more than that, it's what I do love. I mean, I'm, I'm passionate about politics. I, I think diversity and integration is really important. I speak several languages. I travel a lot. My family is uh, Jewish and Christian, black and white. My family is also very uh, accomplished and has been for hundreds and hundreds of years. So... Uh, you know, if you're going to do theater, it's not just to strut your stuff. It's going to be to crack the binary, to create a better world, to be the change you want to see, uh, be the change I needed when I was a kid. I mean, I literally knew zero gay people until I was 23. I just didn't know because I lived in sheltered places on dairy farms. And, you know, not until I moved to New York City did I begin to understand how many different kinds of people were in the world. Um, and now that I travel the whole world, I'm basically thinking of myself as an activist for empathy, and that's what theater teaches. And obviously, that's been my biggest learning curve as a leader because it's so hard raising money for a theater company as an artistic director. I, I kind of, after 23 years, got bitter because I couldn't, I couldn't make it easier. I didn't know how to make it easier. I didn't know how to pay all these women a living wage. And so eventually in 2016, I, I stopped being an artistic director. I closed the company and I'm now much more interested in pay equity than gender equity because I think the gender equity ball is now rolling down the other side of the hill. And I think actors of color are being featured in a fabulous way compared to when I was a kid. But women and people of color are still not being paid anywhere near what men are being paid. So that's become my new flag to wave, you know. Uh, it's not enough just to be a great actor coming out of college. It's also that that person should get a living wage, you know, because they pick girls out of college to pick, to play Desdemona for $300 a week on a non-equity contract, but they'll give an older white man a, an equity contract to play Brabantio. You know, even though Desdemona and Amelia and Bianca are harder roles than Brabantio, they tend to be underpaid and overworked young women taking those roles. So those things interest me just in terms of survivability, you know, longevity. 
Later, I asked her, given that she's played so many of the male leaders in Shakespeare's canon, if there's a fundamental way in which women and men lead differently. Um, there definitely is. Mostly men blame other people. Male characters blame other people. And mostly women blame themselves. Now, even if it's not their fault, a woman will say, how am I part and parcel of me being attacked in my home by my husband? Or what did I do? to alienate my, my child? Or what have I done that I only earn 79 cents on the dollar? Usually women will take their own inventory first. Um, and usually men will take uh, an attacking pose of somebody else's fault, whatever it is. Not a lot of monologues in Shakespeare about what did I do wrong for the men. Um, <laughs> it's usually about how will I revenge this and reassert my honor. Well, fortunately, so Lisa, woman, we don't see woman. that. We don't see that anymore in modern day society. So fortunately, that's that's ended for us, right? <laughs> Not at all. And if you did, and if you did, it wouldn't be your fault. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'd like to hear the flip side to Pierre Carlo's question too, which is, it, with your experience, with your leadership style, with your cultural sensitivity and awareness, can you describe? kind of how you go about gaining willing followership? Gaining followers has to do with finding that Venn diagram or what are we all passionate about? So in terms of like-mindedness, people follow me because they need what I need. They want to express their thoughts and their feelings. They want to change the world. They want to be on stage with great um, others who can push and uh, get in the way of their joy so they can decimate them and score some points. You know, they want to, they want to be in the game. They want to trash talk. They want to push. And, um, uh, you know, or not, but most women I know would love to play Hamlet. And, you know, Hamlet has 1,500 lines. And Gertrude and Ophelia together have 350 lines. Of course I have a following. If you have the skills to play Hamlet, you should play Hamlet. And a whole bunch of my mentees now have played Hamlet or anything they want to play. Um, and the men are doing really cool things like directing reverse gender productions or playing female roles or. You know, people are going trans and going, I'll play anything I want, but let's just look at performative gesture today. What am I selling and what can I uh, use for this character? Uh, finding followers means that you are a service industry and people need what you have. Um, and because I've spent 40 years studying Shakespeare, there's always going to be something I can offer you if you're interested in Shakespeare. You know, if you're working on something, we can, we can find some common ground almost immediately. And I love my Shakespeare tribe. They're all over the world in every language doing Shakespeare. And it takes 10 seconds to start a conversation with a fellow Shakespeare nut. Um, and then we just assume that we are humanists and we have everything on the table together. Pretty much we have a shared tribe. I just know thousands of people who do Shakespeare. And we all love it, you know. So they, the following exists because we're following the ancient god of eloquence. And we're starving in the texting world because people are texting and tweeting. And we're like, this is shallow. I, I, Facebook is fine, but I, I would actually read more than the headline. Where is my, you know, <laughs> where's the deeper version? So for all the dreamers and the deeper version people and the close readers and the people who care about language, boy, it's still useful to have Shakespeare in the world. Uh, you mentioned mentorship, which of course is a crucial type of leadership. Can you describe yourself as a mentor? I am a mentor to so many people, formally and informally, and I have so many mentors. 
And what the women are saying to each other, white women, people of color, all the women are saying, we uh, were trained as, as in previous decades to backstab and to say there's not enough pie for everybody. So we'll just talk about each other behind our backs because that's the only way we can get any kind of power. You know, like a faculty at a small college just backstabbing because there's just no territory to really gain. But now the women are running for president and running, you know, the Taki Garrett is running Oregon Shakespeare Festival. The glass ceilings have been shattered. Now we're saying our job is to hold the door open for our sisters. Once you get through the door, you hold that door open. This is the job. Do you know, make a love line, make a lifeline, make a group. Help a sister, help a friend, help a stranger. Um, random acts of kindness, uh, acts of gratitude, acts of generosity. You see it right now with the pandemic crisis. People are trying to give of their hearts to one another in a really beautiful way. There's a real crisis and people are responding with empathy and kindness, which is, I think, what theater basically teaches. You know, step back, look at the world and see what happens if you behave selfishly and see what happens if you behave with agape love. So would you have advice actually in the, in the midst of this public health crisis? What, what advice would you have for how artists could step up and lead right now? I think uh, the way that you can listen to your internal witness is enhanced by the slowdown. I think that's the best place for inspiration and original work is to go inside yourself and also we have time now to sit under a tree with a notebook and write. And some of the great new stories are gonna come out of this time. Um, and I think uh, helping one another, and there's so much free learning right now. I'm building a free um, Shakespeare training uh, site that's gonna go out for free in the next two weeks and help people learn monologues from scratch so that they wow. can use this downtime to do the thing that they never do, which is learn two contrasting monologues and put them on tape. This is the perfect time to, to, for me to help anybody who wants to go online and learn Shakespeare monologues. It's so I'm going to put teaching, teaching tools for all of it online. And so I think it's time for the giveaway principle. When you take the thing that's most precious to you and you open your heart and you proffer it on the horizon for anybody who's hungry or in need. That's what people are doing right now. Uh, Wednesday, I, I spent an hour listening to Lauren Gunderson, who's teaching for free for an hour, uh, streaming on Wednesdays about playwriting, you know, our most produced playwright. And she's so excited about telling all of us what she knows that I just can't wait for my next class. I've always loved school. And there's free streaming night and day. So this, I spent this last week redoing my website, which I haven't looked at for three years. And in combing through it, I was able to think about my uh, artist statement, my mission, uh, what I want to do in the next few years, how I have neglected those basic business tools. I redid all three of my resumes, my acting, directing, and my CV. And then I went, oh, I should put my producing resume up here too because the next two years there may not be very much work. We're all going to be staggering from the impact of the pandemic. So maybe I'll do some more producing, which I also do and I can do for video and film and corporate stuff. Uh, i got to keep them got to keep working, right? And I, I've also, you know, another thing that we can all do is we dedicate ourselves to writing. So I, I've got a, a screenplay about my father's life that I'm writing and a, an original play about Charlotte Cushman, who was the most famous actress in the world 150 years ago. She was a lesbian who played Hamlet and Romeo and everything else better than any human on the planet. The highest paid actor in the world. 
and everybody's forgotten her. So I have these two projects to write and then these pods, these teaching pods, which I want to do. And also I've been on the phone with some of the people. Here's what I love about what happened today, but I won't say names in specific because the word isn't out on the street. But when an artistic director that you're supposed to work for in the next few months, one of the many things that were canceled in the last two weeks, I, I lost $31,000 of work mm. in the last two weeks. Um, <clears throat> so when an artistic director calls and goes, actually, you're still hired. We're just going to do it next summer. Same deal. And we're going to pay you a third extra for your trouble. My body kind of felt joy. Because if people could say, like, if everybody who booked me this year just went, it's cool, Volpe, we'll do it next year, then I could say to myself, I have all year to write my dream projects, and next year's already booked. Because this whole year was booked, and now it just got unbooked. But if it's pushed, then I can say, wow, I don't have to look for work. What a sense of resting and abundance and gratitude that is, to have a year to float into the dreamland and make original work. That will be my legacy, right? Whatever I actually write that's original. Uh, and uh, whatever I actually put on film after I'm dead will still exist. You know, and then next year I can go and do all these live workshops and solo performances and acting and directing jobs that I was going to do this year. But I can already feel myself coming back to them with a deeper level of readiness. Like, boy, I have another year to look at that project. What can I do with that that I hadn't thought of? Because I thought I only had six weeks till we went to rehearsal. Do you think it's going to make this open-heartedness you're experiencing, this new type of empathy you were talking about, do you think that's going to maintain once this is over? I think so. Is there going to be a shift? I hope so. I think so. I think we're going to have a different president. I think we're going to have a different artscape. I think we're going to have a different understanding about loss and mortality. We're going to have a different understanding about uh, what socialism is, what healthcare is, why do we need it. Um, we're going to have a lot of different understandings. We're going to have a tremendous amount of new work. We're going to have a tremendous amount of thoughtful, well-crafted new work because people are going to have time to do that. Um, and we're going to have, I hope, a sense of gratitude and urgency about the stories we have to tell. And that's why the artists that I love right now are coming out with beautiful narratives on Facebook and lists of resources of uplifting or interesting or self-deepening resources. Um, Stuff that you don't, don't see every day. Right now, it's, well, at least on my feed, because I have like 3,500 artist friends. Those are my friends on Facebook. And almost every one of them has had their economic opportunities wiped out and have responded by posting poetry or gifts of mm. inspiration or volunteering to, to help their neighbors get groceries. Or um, I think that's... That's a kind of leadership that the artists make a difference. They may not make any money, but they make a difference. And wherever there's an artist, there's someone who's willing to hear your story. And it's very healing. We even know with memory loss that older people who have got Alzheimer's can sing songs and have joy from old memories and old songs. And that's what plays and musicals kind of are. They have this contagious joy encoded in them. We make memories and we come back to them. And it's very, very important. That's how Shakespeare is for me. It's like a song from my childhood. And there's something innately important about it that for me, it's always been uh, my tuning fork, my North Star. So Rob, it was apparent from second one of talking to Lisa that <laughs> she is a leader through and through and was probably a leader right out of the womb, I think. Yeah. Uh, and luckily for all of us, she put 
her leadership skills to great use and open the door to a lot of women. But I have a question for you, which is what do you tell artists who have a vision or anyone who has a vision and some kind of ambition, but is not a born leader? How can they step up to the plate in the same way? And is there such a thing as a born leader? Yeah, that's a great question, Pierre Carlo. Um, my, my short answer to the last part is no. There, there's not such a thing as being born an, a natural-born leader. Um, some people have, are, come into the world with a, a certain, I guess, personality style that might draw people towards them. But there's a difference between sort of having something like as generic as charisma or likability um, doesn't mean you sustain followers. So there's a second skill set there that between the, the getting people to pay attention to you is one thing, but then getting people to want to follow you and follow you for the long term is a very, very different thing. And that's a different kind of skill set about how you engage, how you listen. Uh, Lisa talked about how do you get, we talked a little bit about gaining followership and she talked about it being a service industry. Uh, so it brings up the idea of servant leadership about helping others and supporting them to be successful. So there's a lot of ways that as you are starting to engage people who could be followers, how you turn it from, oh, they're interested in you to, oh, I want to follow your direction and follow your vision and get behind it. And those are skills that that all of us can learn how to do. Um, so it's not right. just about so you're like saying, so, so there's someone there is there are people out there who want to uh, create the organization yeah. and have the ambition, but they don't have the skill to build followership. That's an extra skill. That's a skill that any of us can learn how to do, for sure. I see. You know, Caledonia Curry was a great example in our interview with her. She she started off terribly shy as a child and kind of grew into herself and and then was starting to to learn how to share her excitement about things that she saw for vision. And then what she learned was that she got excited helping other people get excited by it. And that's the way that she gained her followers. And that's one of a million ways that someone can successfully gain support for their initiative or for their vision. So um, we can all develop it. It's the idea of how do I engage people Going back to sort of our original idea of what leadership is, how can I engage people towards my vision or direction and communicate in a way that garners their followership and support so that we have something in common? Lisa, in this interview, talked about finding that touch point that we both are passionate about. And then the third piece of it for the leader is understanding the context or situation in which we find ourselves. So with the the idea then of context, you know, Pierre Carlo, even if we look at today with what's going on with COVID-19, there's a specific context. And and we're, we asked Lisa about this directly, and I loved her answer, which was, I'm going to continue to stay positive and generative. And I think we're going to see these amazing stories and products come out of this time period because people have time now to think and work and do their thing. And there's a great example of someone who's seeing the context that we're immersed in and choosing a way she wants to position herself. And there's an endearment to that. It makes me, inspired me to think, wow, how can I be more generative in my work? You know? So for example, for me with my executive coaching, I'm starting to give away a lot of pro bono coaching to people because I just want to be helpful. You know, and part of that was the inspiration from our interview with her. So right, because she's putting a lot of her course material online for free. Yeah, exactly. And we, and I think she's saying, you know, we can all do this. It's really not hard. Right. Um, if you'd like to 
learn some more about Lisa and read a longer version of this interview, please go to our website, uncsa.edu slash artist as leader. And remember, we'd love to hear your ideas about which artist leaders you'd like us to profile in future episodes. So please visit us on our Facebook page at Keenan Institute for the Arts and leave us your comments and suggestions. We may not know about artist leaders in your community, so please let us know. I'm Pierre Carlos Lenti. And I'm Rob Kramer. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.